Father in heaven, we bow before you this evening, Lord. We are thankful, Father, for the privilege to meet with your people. It's always uh, a joy to be among uh, the saints, and Father, just to uh, be with uh, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's my prayer, Father, that you would just bless our meeting tonight, that as we gather around your word, we would be edified, that we would grow, that we would uh, be encouraged and drawn closer to you. And Father, it's my prayer that you uh, also bless the time afterwards, Lord, where we'll pray as a church and lift up requests to you. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would uh, hear those according to your will and and, uh, do as you see fit, Father, in each of our requests that we bring before you. Go with us now to the scriptures, Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's take our Bible tonight. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter number 2. Uh, I want to look at verse 14 down through verse 18, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14 through 18, and uh, we're going to uh, look tonight at Bible study basics, Bible study basics, and some of these may be uh, already well ingrained in you uh, if you're a student of the Word, and uh, if not, then I pray that we'll just be able to learn and glean some new things that uh, would help us as we read our Bibles, as we study our Bibles. And uh, so we're going to look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 for a moment, verse 14 down through verse 18. And notice that Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Now, we're all aware of the importance of our Bibles, right? We looked last week at um, the first of the solas, which was sola scriptura, and that means scripture alone. And we established that from that principle, Scripture alone is uh, the inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient uh, Word of God. It is what we look to for all of our faith and practice. And since the Bible is this very thing that we have studied, we're called to know the Bible and to be students of the Bible. And we pointed out in just briefly last week in Acts 17.11 how that the Bereans... Uh, we see a great example in them. It says, These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, why is this important? Well, because God's word is our final authority and not just the men who speak it, right? And, And so we always come back to the Bible as our own personal authority for faith and practice. And so these Bereans, they took the scriptures themselves and dove into them, meaning the Old Testament scriptures that they had, verifying what Paul was teaching, that this was the Christ. He was pointing to them, that Jesus was the Christ from the Old Testament. And one of the great blessings today is that you and I, we're blessed beyond measure to have the Bible as we have it. I mean, we have it in one covered copy, usually in leather or bonded leather or some uh, fashion, and we can carry it with us. We have it in our pockets on our phones. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, the Apostle Paul probably never thought of a day that he would, there would be people walking around with computers in their pockets, and uh, they've got a Bible that they can access anywhere they go. And, and so we have such a wealth of, uh, of resource to help us study the Word of God and to be in the Word of God. And if we're going to study God's Word, 
then there are some important principles that we as Christians should know and use uh, as we read and consider what the Bible is saying. Now, when we look at the umbrella of Christianity, you have all sorts of varying beliefs and convictions and groups. And what do you find with them? Well, they all are quoting from the same book, aren't they? Um, majority of them, at least. They quote from the Scriptures. Are all of them right? Well, they can't all be right, can they? So why is there so many differing groups that all are, have their roots that they claim in the Word of God? Well, the reason is that God's Word uh, must be properly read and studied in its right context. The, the reason there's varying con- convictions, even on major issues, it comes down to interpretation of what the Bible is actually saying. And, and so there is a proper way to study the Word of God. And if there's a proper way to study the Word of God, there's also an improper way of studying the Word of God. And so this is where you see really where the division takes place. And this is why Paul writes to Timothy in this passage about false teachings in his day and his need to handle the Word of God properly. Now, notice what he says as he starts in verse 15 for a moment. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Now, the Greek word there for do your best, it's one word and It refers to being especially conscientious in discharging an obligation. So he's calling Timothy to be diligent or to give his very best effort in discharging his obligation. What's his obligation or his calling? It is handling the Word of God. That's the central feature here, right? The central calling, all right? In some translations that you'll see this, uh, it's it's translated differently. In the King James, it'll say study. Uh, in the NASB and NKJV, it'll say be diligent. Those are some of the other main translations that I would reference. Uh, but Paul essentially here is wanting Timothy to do his best to be the worker that is approved of God. And how would he do this? By rightly handling the word of truth or rightly dividing it. That rightly handling means to guide the word of truth along a straight path, to keep it on its intended course of what it means. So how can you and I know the truth of God's Word when there are so many people that have so many different ideas about God's Word and convictions from God's Word? And I want to point out two overarching principles, or three actually, three overarching principles, and we'll get through as much as we can. If we don't get to the end, it's there for you to read and study. It's why I typed out a lot of it for you, and I didn't realize, I just gave you what the answers were. I didn't even give you the fill in the blank, so... Uh, you all are uh, you all are smooth sailing tonight, um, but notice with me number one, and this is probably obvious for all of us. If we're going to rightly understand the Word of God, we must understand the context. We must understand context. Context is absolutely everything when it comes to reading and studying the Bible. Now, what is context? Well, I give you an Oxford Dictionary definition here. Uh, it refers to the circumstances that form the setting of an event, statement, or idea. The parts that immediately precede and follow a word or passage and clarify its meaning. And that's really a good definition. Context is getting the proper meaning of a statement or a passage in light of what is said before it and what is said after it, in light of the whole of what is being said. So let me break this down into, firstly, the immediate context that we'll look at, the immediate context. God's word as a whole is a divine message to mankind. And any message given must be understood in its context. Now, we every day get messages of various forms. We get 
uh, emails, we get phone calls, we get voicemails, we get text messages. And understanding the context of what we receive uh, essentially is the foundation of where we're going to understand what's being said. Now, if my wife was to text me and say, we need to talk, I could interpret that in a lot of different ways. There's not a lot of context to that, right? It could mean that, man, I'm in some big trouble and I don't know about it. It could mean she has some great news. could mean that she needs to give me something that we need to put on our calendar just, just, just to update me about something. Uh, I don't, I, I, it's important for me to know exactly what she means by that message. Now, we live in a world where context is directly and indirectly abused, right? Uh, we look in our, in our, own, in our own culture. You, you, we get clippings from preachers or clippings from politicians saying a statement. And it's often cut out of its broader context, so it's used in a way to demonize or mis, uh, misrepresent something or someone or a position. Uh, we see this all the time. But that made me think about that in relation to God's Word. How upsetting is it if someone takes something we said out of context in order to misconstrue it to mean something different? I mean, we don't take that lightly. We're upset about that. Now, now think about that in terms of the living, eternal God, those who intentionally misconstrue His Word to fit what they want it to say. Uh, that, that's an offense that I certainly don't want to be guilty of. But the reality is, all of us at some point are unintentionally guilty of this. This is part of growing in knowledge of the Scripture and in understanding the Bible. This is why we're to always be students of the Scriptures but for those who do so intentionally, refusing to look at context, refusing to acknowledge the truth, that would, that would be a scary thing for me. The Bible is God's message to us, written in the form of many messages, letters, and, and things of that nature. All of it is entirely from God, and we want to understand what God means by what He has said. And that is not always easy. You ever come across a passage that you really just didn't quite understand what has been said? Uh, even preachers. There's passages that are tough passages that we wrestle with. We wrestle and wrestle and wrestle with. And uh, Jared will testify that there's some passages that we just are in debate about even today that you have to give some lenience as to uh, not be, maybe not be so dogmatic about certain passages. Uh, so understanding communication is not always easy. It becomes more challenging when the speakers or writers are separated from their hearers by many centuries and when their customs and languages have little to no similarity. I mean, you think about it in the realm of culture for a moment. One, we're not Jewish, and so we're kind of disconnected, disconnected from some of the Jewish culture, that some of the things that are involved in their writings. You and I don't speak Greek or Hebrew, do we? Uh, so there, there's, there's language barrier, there's cultural barrier, and so this shows us why we must give all the more diligence to studying the Scriptures when it comes down to it. We, so let me point out two things that really determine proper Bible study versus improper Bible study. And these are two words that you may remember or not remember, but you'll, you'll often hear these in the realm of Bible study. And the first one is this. It's called eisegesis. Anybody heard of eisegesis? All right, I'm glad we see some hands there. If you've never heard of it, eisegesis is this, the interpretation of a text in the Bible by reading into it one's own ideas, by reading into it one's own ideas. So it is imposing something on the text that is not meant by the original author. The second principle is this, 
exegesis. That is to explain, interpret from X. X means out of, right? An explanation or critical interpretation of a text. It's bringing out of the text what is meant by the original author. Now, which practice do you think should be used in properly understanding and studying the Bible? Eisegesis or exegesis? Exegesis, right? That's pretty obvious. Exegesis. Exegesis, bringing out of the text what is there and understanding it in light of the surrounding context. So how can we make sure we're practicing exegesis and not eisegesis? Well, I think firstly, we need to always approach Scripture without preconceived ideas and have an open mind to what is true. Now, all of us, by our own raising and nature in this world, we often sometimes will approach Scripture with an idea in our head of what we think God's saying, and if we're not careful, we can get, make our idea try to fit what, God is, what, is, what is written in the Scriptures. That is imposing something on the text. We have to be careful not to come to Scripture with preconceived ideas uh, and, and thinking we already understand what Scripture says when maybe we don't understand exactly what it says. Because here's the reality. Scripture may reveal something that goes against what I previously thought. As a student of the Bible, I will tell you this, that over the years I've had to change my position on several things. Because there's a lot of things that I was told growing up that I go to study the Bible and look for what the Bible actually says on this topic and realize what I was told really isn't there. And so that causes me to change my position. This is really what challenges us, is that we are called to always bend our convictions to the Word of God, never make, uh, never make uh, what we think what the Word of God is. Always bend your mind to the Scripture rather than bending the Scripture to your mind. That's what I was trying to say. Uh, secondly, we need to study the Scripture with some fundamental principles of interpretation. So let me, let me give you just an example here. When reading a verse in the Bible, what is said earlier and afterward affects the understanding of any word, phrase, or sentence. A good example of this is a very familiar verse of Scripture. All right, It's Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Now, what does that verse mean? We hear it quoted a lot, right? Can you really do anything, defining anything, through Christ's strength? Can you lift a car through his strength? Does Paul mean that you can stop a train with his strength? Can you fly around like a superhero? Uh, does it mean that you can win your championship ball game uh, by this verse? That's probably one of the most common applications is, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, so therefore I can, I can win my game, I can accomplish anything in life, right? Well, that's not what Paul's really talking about in the context. Let's look at it together. Look at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10 through 16 for a moment. Philippians chapter 4, and look at verse 10 through verse 13. Now, I'm giving you verses before and after, and, and let's look at this for a moment. Notice that Paul says in Philippians 4 and verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, not that I am speaking of being of need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in, every, in, in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through, Christ, through him who strengthens me, which is Christ. 
Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and to you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, what's Paul talking about in the context here? He's talking about just anything. Can we apply, I can do all things through him who strengthens me to everything? No, Paul's talking about specifically his situation that he was in. Christ supplying and taking care of Paul's needs. Paul knew he could continue serving whether he had little or whether he had a lot. In whatever circumstance or situation he was in, Christ was his strength to continue doing what God had called him to do. Now, we can get proper application from that for us. Christ is our strength in whatever situation we're in to continue living our Christian life and being who we're supposed to be, who he's called us to be. So, without context, here's what we find. A person can make the Bible say anything they want it to say. Without context, a person can make the Bible say anything they want it to say. There's a, there's a coffee mug out there that says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. I've been tempted to buy it because <laughs> uh, it's true. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. One of my pastoral teachers long ago said, context, context, context. That's the key. Context is everything. So most texts in the Bible, they have a timeless message for all of us, but they were written to specific people at a specific point in time. And to get what God meant, I think it's important for us to look at what took place then. Let's look at some of the settings we should consider. There's a lot in this first point. That's why I tell you there's a lot here. If we don't get through all of it, then uh, that'll be fine, but it, you have it to take with you. you. We think firstly about the immediate setting of Scripture, the immediate setting, what you're reading directly in a book. If you're reading through 1 Corinthians, what's the immediate setting of Corinthians? What's the immediate setting of that writing? And this, here's some simple questions to consider when looking at an immediate passage. And here's the questions. Number one, who is writing? Who is writing? Let's just take Corinthians, for example. Who wrote Corinthians? Paul did, right? The author, the writer, can tell us a lot about the passage or about the book we're reading. It's important to note that. We look at different writers of the New Testament. We learn somewhat of who they were and the style in which they wrote and what some of the topic that they wrote on. For example, the Apostle John, he was very evangelistic. He wrote the Gospel of John and the three letters of, of John. Uh, they're, they're broadly dealing with unbelievers believing. Paul was very theological. He wrote great detail about doctrine in his letters. Uh, Luke was very detailed. He was a physician, so he, he, he keeps great record in chronological order through his gospel and on through the book of Acts. Matthew was a Jew who wrote his gospel account to appeal to the Jewish mind for them to see that Jesus is the Messiah. So, so we can learn about the book by who wrote the book and what their aim was. But then we think about who are they writing to. This helps us give clarity too. This is the second question. Who are they writing to? Well, who was the audience of Corinthians? That's easy, isn't it? Corinthian, the Corinthian church, right? Now, now in the letters, this is pretty easy to find out because uh, usually Paul or the author in the beginning will say to the church of this or to the saints in this location. Uh, but then we also have others uh, that we have to recognize that were written directly to just believers, that were written to individuals. Uh, some may be challenging on figuring out who it was written to, if you look at some of the Old Testament passages. Um, but who was Paul writing to in Galatians 1, 1 and 2, to the churches of Galatia? Who is Luke's gospel written to? 
Well, he opens that up in Luke chapter 1 and says to Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus. So, so some books will give us a plain answer to that question. Here's another question to consider. When were they writing? When were they writing? Well, knowing the time frame of when they were writing will give insight into maybe why they wrote something. For example, Paul wrote Romans under the imperial rule of Nero. Well, why would that be important? Well, one, it'd be super encouraging to the fact that the power of the gospel is uh, that that the gospel is the power of God into salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and the Greek. Paul didn't mince words about the power of the gospel in dark ages, in dark times, right? And and so that's encouraging for us in understanding that uh, that Paul wrote Romans in a very dark age of history when Nero was was persecuting uh, Christians. Uh, we think about Jeremiah when he wrote his book. He wrote during the rebellion of Israel. So it gives insight into his words about coming invasion and judgment from Babylon. So understanding a time frame for the writing is also important. Another question to consider, what are they writing about? What are they writing about? What is the central theme and focus of their writing? Well, how can we know what the book is about? How can we know what any book of the Bible is about? This is an easy question. The answer is to read the whole book. <laughs> read the book. Uh, read the whole book and pay attention to certain things that are said and maybe some things that are repeated throughout the book. Um, you'll find out the central theme of what's being said and what it's about. Now, you have different types of books, genres that are given, such as uh, historical books. What would be a historical book? Joshua, Kings, Samuel. How do you know it's a historical book? Because it's a record, right? It's given a record of life and history through Israel. Then you have doctrinal books, such as Romans and Ephesians. You have some poetic books. What would be a poetic book? Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, those sorts of things. Prophetic books. What's a prophetic book we would see? Daniel, Revelation, Ezekiel. So so you see there's different genres of Scripture that make application for us. And then we see, lastly, why were they writing? Well, when you see what the author is writing about, you then often can see why they were writing. For example, of Galatians, Galatians, Paul writes Galatians to address the controversy from the Judaizers, right? Trying to impose the law on the gospel. He writes Corinthians because that church had all kinds of trouble, uh, from division to immorality. Uh, So we can see why he's writing these sorts of things. So these questions that are under the immediate setting help us to understand that immediate context. But then we also see that immediate context involves also knowing some historical setting of what we're reading. And we've kind of touched on this. We can think about uh, some of the letters and some of the uh, Old Testament books. Genesis, we know historically, it's the book of beginnings. So that gives us the beginning of creation of mankind and the early uh, uh, patriarchs. Exodus, about the Jews leaving Egypt. The Gospels, centrally focused on Jesus' ministry and atonement. Uh, Acts, dealing with church history uh, and producing more churches. The letters of Paul, uh, written to specific churches. Revelation, about nearing judgment and uh, our future with Christ. So what we learn from understanding these historical settings is that nations, churches, and individuals may face similar situations in their own history and gain wisdom and instruction from those biblical accounts. But God's message is clearer understanding the historical picture that's seen. For example, think about Jonah for a moment. Jonah 1. God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. What's Jonah do? 
He goes the opposite direction. Why? He has a hatred for the Ninevites. Why does he hate them? What's the historical setting there? Well, the Ninevites, they were a barbarous and violent people. They were the enemies of Israel. And so, therefore, he has a hatred for them. He goes the opposite direction and disobeys God. Think also about a cultural setting. Immediate context demands understanding cultural setting. Now, this often deals with customs and practices of the Bible, uh, of the people in the day in which they lived. For example, Israel's people in Christ's day were largely, largely agricultural. There's a reason that Jesus teaches uh, with a lot of parables and, and, and imagery dealing with planters and planters and shepherds and vineyards and, and, uh, and reapers and all that sort of thing. He didn't use cars and trains and skyscrapers, did he? Like it wasn't there, right? So, so he, he's directing truth to the people in his day. Here's one cultural example. We read of David in his day and time, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. It says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, what's odd in that scenario? Well, one, we see David's sin. He shouldn't have been gazing upon this woman who's bathing. But how many of us walk out and just walk out onto our roof and hang out for a little bit? We don't do that, do we? Why? Because culturally, they had a different roof back in that day. Ours are steep. We don't climb our roofs unless we have to. And uh, even then, we don't want to. But in David's day, their roof were, their roofs were like their decks, their patios. They would go up there to hang out in the evening and, and enjoy the cool of the day or the sunset. Uh, and so that's what David's doing. It's as if it's equivalent to him walking out on his patio or his deck, only it'd be elevated. It'd be up high. And, and so you see a cultural example there of understanding the cultural setting. So all these things give us some insight into the immediate context of what we're reading. But then there's also, letter B, the overall context that's important. What I mean by the overall context is that is the context of the entirety of the book or the entirety of the Bible. If Scripture seems to not harmonize with another Scripture, the interpretation of one of those Scriptures is usually off. So, for example... Some have said that Paul and James contradict each other. Now, why in the world would anybody say that Paul and James contradict each other? Well, Paul teaches very plainly in Romans, we're justified how? By faith, right? But you go to James' epistle, and James says we're justified by works. That seems directly at odds with each other, doesn't it? But when you come to study the context of what each of them are saying, James is not contradicting justification by faith. He's showing that, that works are a proof of our faith. So there's a justification in the sight of God, which is faith, and in the sight of men showing forth our faith, that's what James is teaching. But to those who love the idea that we have something to do with our salvation, guess what they love to quote out of context? They love to quote James, and they'll repeatedly quote James to try to prove their point. So no man, understand, has the authority to impose his will on the text. We do not determine the meaning of Scripture we discover the meaning of Scripture because Scripture already has its meaning. We're trying to find out what it means by rightly handling the Word of God. So Scripture reveals what it means, I believe, by contrasting, comparing the whole of Scripture with each other. And I said this last week, and I say it again, compare Scripture with Scripture, and Scripture will unfold Scripture. Uh, if the Bible contradicts itself in places, then how can we say that it harmonizes perfectly? 
I believe it harmonizes. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, sometimes there may be what we call a paradox, two truths that seem to be at odds but actually work together uh, in their own way. Or there may be some textual criticism and contrasting that needs to be applied. Um, But understand, in the whole of the Bible, God does not contradict himself. Truth is absolute and does not contradict itself. Everything he says and does is in perfect harmony. So, therefore, considering context is key to understanding his wonderful truths, we must apply context. We must always take context into consideration. Number two tonight, we also need to consider the language. Language is another aspect to consider when reading and studying our Bibles. Now, notice firstly that there's language of specific phrases or passages. Just like our own language today, there are certain figures of speech to know and recognize in Scripture. And these are ones that I learned in English class when I was in school. And because I hated English, I ignored them. So I had to relearn them back when I went to Bible college. And, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's one thing. You, you say you're never going to do something, then God shows you otherwise. When I was in high school, I said, I will, I, I will never be a preacher. You know what God did? He called me to be a preacher. In English class, I said, I'll never use this. I hate English. Now I live in English. <laughs> I, I depend on grammar and all these sorts of things. And so here's just a few things that you'll see in Scripture, uh, figures of speech and way language is used. First one's a simile. What is a simile? Well, it's a formal comparison using terms as, like as, even as, like. And here's an example. In Psalm 1-3, the psalmist says, The blessed man who walks in the word of God and avoids the world, he says in 1-3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, in all that he does, he prospers. That doesn't mean that blessed man is literally a tree or that his fruit is going to be literally of a tree, but he's saying he's like a tree. So he's an Im- the tree is an image. It's a picture of what a fruitful man look- looks like in his wife as he walks with God. It's a picture demonstrating the fruitfulness of the blessed man in his life. Then we have a metaphor. What's a metaphor? Well, that's a word or phrase applied to an object or action that is not literally applicable. So here's an example. Jesus spoke a lot with metaphors. Jesus said in John 10, 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Is Jesus literally a door swinging on hinges? No, he's not. I mean, this is pretty basic stuff. Are we literally sheep? No. Now, I can bat like a sheep pretty close to one, but uh, I'm, I'm not a literal sheep. We, sent, we sung a song at church camp. And one of it, it goes like this, it says, I don't want to be a goat, nope, because a goat has no hope, nope. You ever heard that song? Sierra says she's heard it. Uh, I just want to be a sheep, and then, bah, right? Uh, that's, the, that's what we would do as kids. We would all, bah. And uh, they always said I had the best bah out of anybody, so they just called me a sheep. And, um, but we're not literal sheep, are we? It's a picture. It's imagery for us to understand. So, 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 so Jesus, uh, is giving himself as an image as a door, just as we go through a door to enter this building, so also we go through Jesus to heaven and to be of his fold. And just as a sheep needs a shepherd, so also we as sheep, we need the shepherd. And so you see the application here through that metaphor. Then you have allegory. Allegory is a story, poem, or picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden or deeper meaning. 
Many of us have probably read The Pilgrim's Progress. That would be an allegory, this, this broad picture of Christian and his life and, and on his way to, to heaven. Uh, Paul uses Isaac and Ishmael as an allegory of, to teach two covenants, one of bondage and another of freedom. If you go read Galatians chapter 4, and verse 22 through 31, so allegory is another way in which you'll see used. Then we also have parables. A parable is simply an illustrated spiritual truth through an earthly comparison. These were, these were given to reveal truth to his disciples, but they were also at the same time given as judgment to conceal truth from those who were unbelievers, like the Pharisees. Now, look at one, one example of this in Matthew 13. I'm trying to take you to a few scriptures so that we have uh, some things to look at tonight that will demonstrate some of this. Matthew 13, and look at verse 31 through verse uh, 33 for a moment. There's some longer parables, but I just want to read these two short ones uh, since they're brief. <clears throat> but you'll notice that uh, <clears throat> he put another parable before them, Matthew 13, 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So what do you see there? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He's likened it to a mustard seed. What does he describe about this mustard seed? It starts out real small, but then it becomes bigger, the biggest of all. Same thing for the leaven. You put leaven in the, in, in the bread or in the meal, and uh, then it, it expands, right? So, so he's comparing the kingdom to that. And what have you seen with the kingdom of God from the time that it started with Christ to now? It has slowly but surely grown and grown and grown, and it's not done growing. Uh, and so he's comparing that through a parable. So, so, so there's great imagery here, great lessons we learn through language and how it's used. So there's probably other, other phrases and passages to consider, but these are the four most prominent. But notice also, letter B, that there's language of specific words. And this is where uh, one reason that I'll often give you a, a Greek definition and a reference to where I got that from in your notes. Uh, where, what Greek lexicon I use and what it means. Because... Sometimes the English word doesn't fully convey the meaning of what the Greek word was. Even though the English word is sufficient to understand what is being said, you can get more nuggets of gold, if you would, in some words that are said, and some interpretation issues, too. So there's various words in the Bible. Not all words mean the same thing, even if it's the same word. Some words have different definitions in the Greek, but are the same word in English. And this is why using a Hebrew-Greek dictionary is helpful. Uh, and all of us can have access to them. You can get them free on your phone now. So they're, they're, they're easy to use. Uh, if you ever need help with one, I'll be happy to show you. But anyone can do that. Consider the word repent for a moment in two different passages. What's the difference between these two words for repent? If you look at Mark 1.15 and look at what this says, Jesus says in Mark 1.15, as he starts his ministry, he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Now, repentance is part of salvation, right? Repentance and faith, they are inseparable. They happen at the same time, right? So repentance, this Greek term means to feel remorse, to be converted. It is essentially to change one's mind in persuasion. So you see how repentance is a, is a turning in one's conviction and a trusting with faith in Christ. So repentance and faith, they're linked together. 
when we believe. But then you look at Matthew 27 and verse 3, and here's another English, in the realm of English, where this is used, English uh, translation, verse 3, and I found out that actually, depending on what translation you're using, it may not have the word repent. In the King James, it says that Judas repented himself in verse 3 of Matthew 27. Look at that with me just for a moment. It says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that he was condemned, he changed his mind or repented himself and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Now, believe it or not, I have had someone tell me that Judas, he actually got saved. See, it says he repented because the word was repented in the translation they were using. But when you go to look at it, it's a different Greek word than the Greek word for repent that Jesus used in Mark 1 in the realm of salvation. This word in this passage in Matthew 27 is to have regrets about something in the, wish, in, the, in the sense that one wishes it could be undone. So Judas's repentance here really is no different than a thief who gets caught for stealing and he just wishes he could undo it so he's no longer guilty of doing that one thing. It's not that he has turned unto Christ and saw his, his desperate need of salvation. Judas Iscariot is a prime example of what Paul told the Corinthian church about false repentance or grief. He said in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, there's a repentance or a worldly repentance in which they're just sorry that they're found out. Then there's a godly repentance that is truly turning to God through his salvation. So that's just one example, and you'll find others in Scripture where the Greek term may be translated the same in English, but it has a different meaning. Now, here's another thing. Other, exa- other words may be the same in Greek and English, but have different meanings based on the context. And I think I pointed this out briefly in, in Sunday morning's message. Consider the word save or save. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be delivered or rescued, right? Well, there's different senses in which the word save is used. We are saved from the penalty of sin. So, for example, Acts 16.31 the jailer was told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He's talking about you'll be saved from the sin, from, from the penalty of sin. You'll have salvation. There's a second sense. The word saved is also used in the realm of physical danger or spiritual danger. Matthew 14, 30. Jesus walked, I mean, Peter walking on the water, begins to sink. He cries out, Lord, save me. Well, was Peter calling out on Jesus to save him from hell, from his penalty of sin? No. Believe it or not, I've heard preachers use that text in that very way. And I'm thinking, that's not what that text is about. He's not calling on Jesus to save him from from hell, from his penalty of sin. He's in a physical danger. He's calling on him in a different sense of salvation. Then we also have save being used in the realm of future sense. God's wrath and judgment coming to come. Romans 5, 9, we have been justified by his blood. Much more, we shall be saved by him, from the wrath of God. There is an impending wrath to come, and you and I have future deliverance from it in Christ. So the principle of understanding the language flows with also the context. So both need to be understood together. And this is why studying, for me as a pastor, is so vital. So vital. The pastor is called to know what's being said in context and to help the people of God understand it through the preaching of the Word of God. Now, This doesn't mean that the pastor's study is always going to be faultless. You know why? Because every man that stands behind any pulpit is human. 
he is not infallible. And this is why also I encourage God's people to have their own Bible, follow along in their own Bible, and say their own Bible, and check things out, just like the early church did. Now, but this is the responsibility of the pastor. He's responsible to give his best in studying the Scriptures to properly feed the church of God what God said as God said it. I love this example in the Old Testament days where uh, Ezra stood before the people of God and preached the law of God to them and when they returned to the land. And you look at Nehemiah 8 and verse 8 in your notes and listen what happens here. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That's essentially shorthand for they were expounding what the text said. They were expounding what the text said. And that's why expositional preaching is so important. Expositional preaching, someone who is preaching expositionally is expounding what the text says in its proper context. And I believe one of the best ways to safeguard context is to take a book through it. Verse 1 chapter 1, all the way to the end, you get the whole context and the right context of what's being said in the Word of God in that book. So that's, that's why we practice that here. Thirdly and lastly, I'll try to be quick with this, we must consider the application. Consider the application. Some texts are applied to certain people. Now, there's some passages of Scripture, while directly intended for the people of that time, also have, are meant for all men because they hold a universal truth or a universal command to all the world, right? For example, Romans 3.23, Paul wrote that to the Romans, but it also contains a universal truth for everyone. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, every single one of us. Um, the command to repent and believe the gospel, that goes out to the entirety of the world. That is God's command to the world. But then we see some passages, they're only applied to believers. It doesn't have anything to do with someone who doesn't know Christ. The letters to churches give specific instruction to believers on how to live, uh, structure, and operation for the local church. Romans 12, 1 is an example. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That has no application for the unbeliever. It just doesn't. It's only for the believer. Some letters are addressed to specific people in the Bible, just like our text. Timothy, it's directed to Timothy, right? People as a whole cannot be lumped into a passage that only applies to certain individuals. Only Noah was told to build an ark. If someone goes and tries to build an ark because they think a flood's coming, they've got some nuts loose in their head. Only Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac. Only Moses was told to liberate Israel from Egypt. Only the apostles were told that they would have this miraculous power by which they would confirm the word of God with signs. Yet, because of failing to understand what was written and to whom it was written, you have people who will take Mark 16, 17 through 18, and practice their handling snakes and drinking harmful substances, all in the name of testing their faith or that I have faith. You know what's happened as a result of that? Many people got bit by that rattlesnake and they died. Why? A misapplication of that text. That text was not meant for them. You can learn from it, but it wasn't meant for them to go drink poison and to handle snakes and to, 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 to show forth their faith in this way. It's not what it meant. So misapplication. We've got to understand the right application. So some texts are applied to certain people. Secondly, some texts are applied to certain times. For example, we have the Old Testament 
uh, law of sacrifices, why don't we sacrifice animals anymore? Why don't we bring in goats and sheep here and, and uh, sacrifice them? Well, why? Because they were meant for that old covenant era. They were pointed forward to Christ and what his redemptive work would complete. And for time's sake, I won't read it, but go read Hebrews 10, 8 through 18. We're going through Hebrews in Sunday school, so this, I mean, it's, it's riding down the line with what we've been studying. Uh, but Christ brought an end to that system because he's the one final sacrifice. There's no more need for any sacrifice because those sacrifices weren't good enough to take away sins anyway. They only pointed forward to the one sacrifice that would. Lastly, all texts must be applied. All, all texts must be properly applied by context. And what I point out from this is that understanding context, language, and application, we can see how a text relates to us personally as Christians. How does any given scripture apply to me today? And this is part of my own personal devotional practice every morning. I like to pin down or type out some things that I observe. And usually I will type some things. If I read a chapter of scripture, I'll observe some things that the context is speaking. What's the context of this that I just read? And then lastly, I'll say, how, what application do I glean from this for me? What application do I glean from this for me? Not that I'm going to make it apply to me if it doesn't, but I'm go, I can learn and glean principles of truth here that I can apply to my own Christian life. See, God's word is meant to penetrate and change the hearts of all of his people through the ages. So I learned from Abraham in Genesis 22 when he goes and sacrifices Isaac, or is about to, I learned that I need to have faith and obey God no matter what he says. Doesn't mean I'm supposed to go sacrifice my child on a mountain, but I, I'm, I'm to obey God and have faith in him. I learned from David in 2 Samuel 11 when he walked out on his roof, idleness can lead me into sin. He was idle. Idleness will lead me into sin. I learned from Job about God's faithfulness when all seemed lost and hopeless. I learned that God is faithful. I learned from the New Testament letters to churches, specific instructions about Christian living. I mean, some of the greatest application you're going to glean is just the direct commands from the New Testament to the believer about living and doctrine, church apparition. So though the scriptures were written to specific audiences at specific times, the application is there for us. And proper application can only be gained when the Bible is rightly understood in its proper context and language usage. And so when the failure to rightly handle the Bible takes place, God's word, as he meant it, is distorted from its original truth. And friend, this is the reason throughout Christianity you have a multitude of beliefs all coming from the same book. Paul says to Timothy to rightly handle the word of God. But if it can be rightly handled, guess what? It can be wrongly handled. And that's exactly what was happening in Timothy's day. If you look back at our text for just a brief moment, in 2 Timothy Verse 17 and 18, what was happening in Timothy's day? This, is, this gives context to why Paul says what he says about rightly handling the truth, right? He speaks of these people who avoid, he says, Timothy says, avoid these people who just have irreverent babble that leads people to more ungodliness. He says their talk spreads like gangrene. And then he mentions two people, Hymenius and Philetius. Why does he mention them? Because they have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Paul gives context here. Why, Timothy, you have to be rightly handling the truth. You've got people like Philetus and Hymenius who are telling people a wrong doctrine, that the resurrection had already come and gone. 
And that wrong doctrine was really upsetting the faith of some of the other believers. That's why we see it's important. Now, you and I, we're not promised infallibility in our interpretation. That's why we've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. Scripture will unfold Scripture. The best commentary in the Bible is the Bible itself. But here's something to take away from this. Since we are not infallible in our interpretation, I hold this conviction dearly to my own heart. It's important that you and I have a spirit of humility and grace when we study the Bible. I've come in contact with too many good Christian people that are too dogmatic about certain convictions that uh, are questionable when it comes to the Scriptures. There's some things that are they're written in stone. Christ alone is the atonement, right? There's some things that are uncompromising. But my eschatology position to yours, that's not something that's a hill worth dying on, right? There's certain issues that are weightier than others. So it's important for us to have a spirit of humility and grace when we read and study the Bible and always be open to your own error in the pursuit of truth. Because like I said earlier, I've changed my position on many things growing up. Growing up, because I realized that some of the things I was told isn't exactly what the Bible said in its right context. And uh, so that's important for us to understand. So these are some Bible study basics. Maybe most of you probably are well-versed in these. I hope so. Um, but if not, I hope that they will help you and be a guide to you. you could, we could do a long series on just studying the Bible. We didn't get into different hermeneutics and different, all sorts of different things. So we'll, we'll save that for another time. But these are some basics that I think would be helpful to us. And so that will conclude our time in, in the Scriptures tonight.